thank you very much indeed. Wasn't it lovely to hear the violin this morning? That was great. Ruby, thank you very much indeed for encouraging us with that. And uh, while I'm awake, can I encourage you to keep on meeting together? The writer to the Hebrews does exhort us to carry on meeting together and to not give up doing that, as some are in the habit of doing. So while I'm away, I expect you to carry on meeting together on Sunday mornings. Well, Romans 8, and uh, let's ask for God's help. When the Lord Jesus saw the multitude by the lake, he saw that they were harassed and helpless, uh, like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And Lord, that is our situation this morning. We are in many ways like that multitude, harassed and helpless with many cares and worries and pressures. And we ask that you would have mercy on us, uh, that you would draw near to us, and that you would teach us many things this morning by your Spirit, through your Word. And we ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. Well, a few words can make a very great deal of difference in our lives, can't they? Those of us who are married know that the words I will uh, or I do have changed practically everything. Uh, In 1815, when the Duke of Wellington won his famous victory at Waterloo, The the news was relayed back to England by semaphore, which is a signalling system using flags. And uh, in that way, the message was transmitted by flags from ship to ship, and then when the message reached the coast of England from one church tower to the next church tower. Um, Unfortunately, at one point in the chain of communication, Only two words were received. Wellington defeated. Because at that particular point, the fog came down and uh, the next man in the chain didn't receive the end of the message. And uh, the end of the message contained those very important words, the French. Uh, And those two words, you see, made all the difference, didn't they? Because Wellington defeated the French. Now, in the passage that we're looking at this morning in Romans chapter 8, Paul is is kind of bringing together everything that he's been teaching us so far about the absolute security of the Christian in the face of sin and death. That is what this magnificent chapter is all about. It contains some extremely well-known verses. Uh, John Stott's comment is very striking. He says this, In this particular passage, the Apostle rises to sublime heights unequalled in any other part of Scripture. And I think there is a sense, isn't there, in which when we're looking at this passage, we are standing on very holy ground indeed. But what do these verses actually mean? What does Paul want you and I to take away from this text that will help us not only in our lives this week, but for as many years as we have left. And the answer is contained in just four words. They're four very short words of just one syllable each. 
But once we understand them, I think we will find that they are words that make all the difference. Uh, These words are the little phrase in verse 31, if you would like to look at it, where Paul says, God is for us. God is for us. Now once we know that, and once we understand why that is true, I hope that the spiritual fog that sometimes clouds our minds will lift and that we'll see that we're standing far closer to the gates of heaven than most of us realise. Before we go any further, I need to say you should not be misled by the word if at the beginning of that phrase, if God is for us. Uh, The if in verse 31 is not an expression of doubt. Uh, Sometimes the word if, it sort of introduces a note of uncertainty, doesn't it? So we might say, uh, if it doesn't rain tomorrow, we'll go to Kirstenbosch. Now when we say that, what we mean is, well that would be a lovely thing to do, but at this particular moment, we're a little bit doubtful about the weather. Now that is not the meaning here. The if in verse 31 is an if of certainty. It is an if of assurance. It's actually the if that the scientist or the philosopher might use. So I think you know, don't you, that the scientist sometimes says, if A is true, and we've already proved that it is, well, then B will certainly follow. There's absolutely no question about it. Now, that is the way that Paul is using that word here. And I think we get closest to what Paul means if we substitute the word because. Paul's point is, because God is for us, who can possibly prevail against us? And the answer to that question is no one. Now that's why I want to suggest to you this morning that verse 31 is the focus of the entire chapter. It is the summary of all of Romans 8. A bit later on in this service, we're going to sing the marvellous hymn Amazing Grace, which was written by John Newton. And uh, John Newton wrote a commentary on Romans 8, and when he got to verse 31, this is what he said. At this verse, Paul seems to come to a full stop. After his survey of God's work of grace, the strongest expressions he could use would be too faint. He wants to make an abrupt transformation from describing to admiring. Now that's what you and I want to do with this passage this morning. We want to stand back from everything that Paul has told us about God's gracious work of salvation and we want to admire it. So you'll remember that in our first study in Romans 8... We saw that because of the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross, God has announced that for the believer there is now no condemnation. You might have been a Christian only for a very short time. You know you've still got plenty to learn 
you're probably making lots of mistakes. But if you're a real Christian, you know that God looks at you this morning and he considers you to be as righteous as the Lord Jesus. Then the second thing we saw is that if you are a real Christian, God sends his Holy Spirit into your heart. And one of the first things that he does is to testify that you are one of God's adopted children. The Holy Spirit assures you that you're already a member of God's family and that when Jesus returns, he's going to give you both a new nature and a new physical body that are perfectly suited to eternal life with him in a renewed world and a perfect world. It's a world where there'll be no more hospitals, no more funerals, no more natural disasters. But the problem is this. Throughout Romans chapter 8, we've seen that the Christian has to live with the inescapable tension between the way that our lives are now, with all of the struggles and difficulties, and the way that our lives are going to be in the future when Jesus returns. And that tension can sometimes bring even the most mature Christian to the point of doubt and even despair. And they suddenly find themselves wondering, well, am I really a member of God's family? Is this really true about me? And so because Paul knows that's how all of us think from time to time, in this last section, he pulls his whole argument together and he says, here is the thing you need to know. No matter what your circumstances might be this morning, this is what makes all the difference. God is for us. Now I think uh, therefore that a very helpful way to think about the passage that was read for us is as a response to two questions that every believer will ask at some time or other. I think in verses 26 to 30 Paul is answering the question in what way is God for us today? And then in verses 31 to 39, he's answering the question, in what way will God be for us tomorrow? I hope you've got your white bulletin open in front of you because you'll find there's a little outline that will help you with where we're going in the next couple of minutes. So first of all then, in what way is God for us today? A few years ago, I was um, asked to disciple a young man in England and uh, he was suffering from schizophrenia. And as a young man, he'd been in and out of prison several times. He'd been totally rejected by his family, and when I met him, he was living by himself in a rather squalid flat with only a cat for company. But shortly before I met him, uh, he had become a Christian. He loved Jesus. He understood the basics of the Christian faith. But his life was exceptionally lonely and difficult. And for that reason, you see, he found it 
very difficult to believe that God really is for him in any practical or tangible way in this life. Now I think we can all relate to that, can't we? Our situation might not be as extreme as that. But all of us go through times when it seems as if God is actually too busy running his universe to be concerned about my immediate pressures and problems. And Paul says, I want to show you that God is always exercising his practical, personal, detailed care in your life today in two specific areas. And those two specific areas are prayer and providence. So firstly, prayer. Verse 26, have a look at it. Uh, Verse 26 says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Now, uh, we touched on this rather briefly last week, but we, uh, we ran out of time, and I wasn't able to show you how God is for us in our prayers. Now, can you see in verse 26 that Paul says, when we're praying, the Spirit helps us. Can you see that phrase there? Now, the word translated helps is actually a rather unusual word. It appears in only one other place in the whole of the the New Testament. And it is highly significant to a right understanding of what happens when we pray. So keep one finger in Romans chapter 8 and turn with me please to Luke chapter 10 on page 733. The Gospel of Luke chapter 10 page 733. Now, while you're turning there, let me give you the context. Um, You probably know that in this delightful story, uh, because we're looking at verse 40, in this delightful story, uh, there are two sisters, uh, Martha and Mary, and they've invited the Lord Jesus to come home for dinner. And, uh, as was always the case, Jesus began to teach. And Mary takes off her apron and uh, she sits down at the feet of the Lord Jesus and she's hanging on his every word. The result, of course, is that Martha is left in the kitchen to do all of the cooking and the washing up by herself. And uh, in the middle of verse 40, notice this, she complains to Jesus... Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to come and help me. Now, in the original, that is the same word that you've got in Romans chapter 8. And it's the only other place where you find that word in the whole of the New Testament. What can we learn? Well, think about it with me. You see, Martha is not asking that Mary come and take over while she goes and sits down and reads a book or turns on the television. That's not the idea. No, she wants Mary to come alongside her 
to give her a hand in the kitchen. She wants Mary to carry the burden with her. Now that is what this word in the original means. So come back to Romans now and verse 26. Romans 8 verse 26. You see, Paul is not saying that when we pray, the Holy Spirit takes over so that you and I can get on with something more important. He's not saying that. It's saying that when we pray, the Holy Spirit comes to share the load with us. How does he do it? He intercedes for us. But then this week you'll notice that Paul sheds even more light on what happens when we pray. Look at verse 34. He says, Christ Jesus who died is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Isn't that remarkable? You see, he's saying that when we pray, there's not just one, but two divine intercessors who come to help us. So in our hearts, God the Holy Spirit helps us by interceding according to the will of God the Father. We might not be aware of it, but that's what he's doing. And then in heaven, God the Son helps us by interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. Now you cannot get any closer to God than that. And so can you see that the principle that Paul is teaching is that successful prayer is not dependent on us, but on God. So friends, when we pray, God is for us. But secondly, God is for us because of his providence. Look at verse 28, very famous verse, a memory verse. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. In other words, in all of our circumstances, God is always working for our good. Now, it is very, very important to understand what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying, always look on the bright side of life. The apostle is not a mindless optimist. But what he is saying is that God is constantly at work in all of the circumstances of my life, bringing about a greater good than I can see in the immediate present. Do you understand? Do you follow? Who's he doing it for? He's doing it for those who love him. Now that phrase is not talking about people who are super spiritual and always absolutely full of love for God because if that were the case it would exclude all of us. No, it's the way that the Bible describes people who have experienced the love of God and have responded to it. 
It's talking about those people who have understood that the outstretched arms of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross are holding out the offer of God's love to them personally and they have received that love as the free gift of grace. And Paul says, if that includes you, then because God loves you, God will work everything together for your ultimate good. Even those things that seem most hurtful and the hardest to bear. And what is our ultimate good? Well, it's there in verse 29. Our highest good is to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. Now, my dear friends, can I say to you this morning that if we are to be stable Christians, it is vital we realise that the greatest good that God could work in any of us is not a life of comfort and ease. It's not distinctions in all the examinations that start this week. It is not a perfect marriage. And it is not financial security. And it is not terrific health. The greatest good that God can work in any of us is that each of us should become a unique reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will reflect Jesus differently to me. I will reflect Jesus differently to you. That is the greatest good that God can do in any of us. And verse 30 says that God predestined to do that from before the foundation of the world. He predestined to do it in you from before the foundation of the world. Now I know that people have terrible hang-ups about predestination and uh, we haven't got time this morning to explore all sides of the argument. All I can say is that I believe with all of my heart that salvation is a sovereign work of Almighty God. So I would not be a Christian here this morning if God had not decided beforehand that I should be one. As I was preparing this talk, I came across a a rather good quote in an essay by Dr. J.I. Packer. It's on the back of the pink question sheet. You might like to look at it. And I think what he says here blows quite a few of the cobwebs away around this important subject. Dr. Packer says this, quote, All Christian people believe in the sovereignty of God in salvation, even if they deny it with their lips. How very interesting. Two facts show this. In the first place, you give God thanks for your conversion. Now why do you do that? Because you know in your heart that God was entirely responsible for it. You did not save yourself, he saved you. There is a second way in which you acknowledge that God is sovereign in salvation. You pray for the conversion of others. You ask God to work in them everything necessary for their salvation. And so our thanksgivings and our intercessions prove 
that we believe in divine sovereignty. On our feet, we may have arguments about it, but on our knees, we're all agreed. Well, that's marvellous, isn't it? And you see, what the Apostle Paul is saying in verse 30 is that God always finishes what he started. Look at verse 30. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. They're all past tenses. Now, my friend, you have not yet been glorified. I hope you know that. Your glorification is a future event. And yet, Paul speaks of it in the past tense because it is absolutely cast iron certain to happen. So, God is for the Christian throughout his life on earth, through our prayers, and through his providential control over every single detail of our lives. And that brings us, I think, to the second question we have this morning, which is, well, what about tomorrow? In what way will God be for us tomorrow? Now, from verse 31 and following, uh, the scene changes from the circumstances of our daily lives today, the pressures, the problems and the difficulties, to the threats, to the fears that come into our mind which we sometimes think might prevent us from getting to heaven eventually. Those are the things we worry about. And I think most of us are worriers, aren't we, from time to time. Verses 34 and 35 is a summary of those threats. And if you look carefully, you'll see that all of those threats fall into one of two categories. So there are threats of disqualification, And there are threats of separation. First of all, in verse 34, there is the threat of disqualification. Because Paul asks the question in verse 34, who is he that condemns? Now, what does he mean? Well, is it perhaps possible that an opponent will appear at the gates of heaven with a really terrific argument that will disqualify us from entering heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but I think the list of our opponents is a very long list indeed, isn't it? For a start, there's the unbelieving world. Uh, They've got plenty of arguments to bring against us. They're constantly saying, aren't they, that we're narrow-minded, inconsistent in our behaviour, and we don't do nearly enough for those in need. And then, of course, there's our conscience. Because our conscience keeps telling us that we're not real Christians at all. Uh, It tells us because our Christian walk is wobbly, to say the least, we don't actually deserve to be with Jesus when we die. And then, of course, there's the devil. Uh, The Greek word for devil is the word diabolos, which means slanderer. And the devil is constantly bringing slanderous accusations against us, just as he did, didn't he, against Job in the Old Testament. So you and I have plenty of enemies 
that are only too eager to condemn us before the throne of Almighty God. Now, with so many enemies standing against us, you and I need to be assured that God is for us. So look again at verse 34. Paul reminds us there that if one of these enemies comes forward to condemn us, then Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You see, God has given you and I the greatest gift imaginable. Jesus has died for us. But more than that, God raised him to life in order to prove that his death was 100% effective and sufficient. The resurrection of Jesus is the sign that Jesus has perfectly qualified you and me for heaven. Nothing else is needed except for you and I to receive salvation as a gift. And now the Lord Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, which means that every time an accusation is brought against us, the Lord Jesus is right there saying, but hang on a moment, I died for Simon, I died for Raymond, I died for Reed. His sin has already been punished, there is now no condemnation for him, and therefore no one and nothing can ever disqualify him from heaven. Now I hope that's a comforting thought for us this morning. It ought to be. I think it's really, really important to read these verses in Romans 8 again and again and again for our assurance as Christian people. I wonder if you know this. Um, In some countries, um, you students, listen to this, 40% of the men entering full-time pastoral ministry, 40% drop out within five years of starting the work. Now, I have no doubt that most of them are sincere, honourable Christian men and they've set out with all of the right convictions and intentions. Five years later, they're out of the ministry. They're gone. Why? Well, I want to suggest to you that one of the reasons is they forget Romans 8. And so you see, the accusations of their congregations and the criticisms of their peers in the ministry, and yes, the clergy are often just as bad as criticising one another as ordinary people are, that hostility is more real to them than the fact that God is for them. And so 40% drop out. Paul says, no accusation, no accusation can ever disqualify us. What then about separation? Well, in verse 35, Paul asks the question, can our troubles in this life ever get so bad that we should see them as a sign that we've been separated from the love of God. Now, once again, there's a very long list. And uh, there have been many times, haven't there, when the suffering of God's people has been so intense 
that they've wondered whether he's forgotten all about them. And that's why in verse 36, uh, Paul gives us a quotation from Psalm 44. And that psalm, you can read it later, but that psalm talks about a time when Israel were following God faithfully and they were really seeking to live obedient lives. And yet they were being mocked and they were being persecuted and they couldn't actually understand why God wasn't doing anything about it. Now that's very true to our experience, isn't it? I was chatting with John before the service. It was so heartbreaking this week, wasn't it, to hear about that assault on Emmanuel Christian College in South Sudan. I don't know whether you read about it on the Open Doors Facebook post. Ten people killed, a 14-year-old girl raped. And you can imagine Christians in that community thinking, well, has God forgotten about us? I mean, it's a Christian college. Paul's message is that not even something as painful and harmful and hurtful as that will ever separate us from the love of God. Why not? Why not? Well, in verse 37, Paul makes the most astonishing statement. He says, In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Now, in the original, um, that phrase, more than conquerors, is actually just one word. And we could translate it, super conquerors. Now, that, I think, is an extraordinary claim. Because when you and I are facing opposition at home, uh, hostility at work, or we find that we're being completely misunderstood by our Christian brothers and sisters, do any of us in those moments feel like super conquerors? Well, do you? No, you don't, do you? And I don't either. But you see, what Paul means is that when we go through trials and go through suffering... God doesn't promise to remove us from the circumstances. He promises rather to come to us in the circumstances. He comes to us personally in those moments to bring us through. And you see, his power and his presence with us are what make us super conquerors. And that's a t-shirt all of us can wear. I wonder if you remember that extraordinary scene in the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel has three friends who refuse to bow down and worship the king's golden statue. Do you know the story? Uh, The king in question was Nebuchadnezzar, who famously had a very short fuse. And when Daniel's friends defied him, uh, Nebuchadnezzar totally lost it. Uh, He had them tied up and he had them thrown into a blazing furnace that was heated seven times hotter than normal. To the outsider, it looked as if God had deserted them, didn't it? But if you read that story, the king goes and looks. He looks into the furnace and he's absolutely astonished. And this is what it says. Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, and unharmed and the fourth 
looks like a son of the gods. Now don't miss the obvious point. The most striking feature of that story is that God does not save those men from the fire. He saves them in the fire. Do you see? And God may not bring you and I through our own personal trials in the way that you and I would ideally want or expect. But he always brings us through every trial in a way that brings us one step closer to heaven. And that's why the Apostle ends this most magnificent chapter by saying, I am convinced. You see those words? I am convinced that nothing, absolutely nothing, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul was deeply convinced of that. I hope you are too. Let's pray. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the security we have as members of your eternal family. By the power of your Holy Spirit, please give us a renewed awareness that you are for us in all the circumstances of life. And please grant to us a renewed confidence that the work you've started in us, you will certainly finish. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen indeed.